morning. Welcome to you on this cool, chilly, Colorado-like morning. I love it. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or on the internet. We're glad that you're along uh, with us also. Um, we come to celebrate Jesus and the resurrection, but we also uh, today would re be remiss not to acknowledge, uh, wow, what went on in Paris and that our hearts are broken and we're all French uh, today, and I actually am, but you guys are, have to pretend like you are. And, and uh, we, I want to take just a minute and do uh, what uh, is going to be done in stadiums and churches around the, the world today. Let's stand together and take just a minute of just silence and recognition of those who have been hurt, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Can we do that? God, I thank you that even in situations like this that we don't understand, we can take solace in the fact that you are God. Lord, we don't understand many things that happen in life, but we'll trust you. God, one thing that we do know is that you are the comforter, and we pray that you would come as a comforter today to families in Paris and from various places. Bring solace and comfort by your Holy Spirit. God, we also know that you bring justice. And God, we ask for justice to be done. Lord, we know that you bring wisdom. And we ask for wisdom from our leaders here in America and around the world. Lord, that they would recognize who the threat is. Name it for what it is. And God, that they would lead us in ways that would um, bring peace around our world. We pray for peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And God, we, uh, we are going to entrust ourselves to you. God, I pray that you would protect not only there, but other places uh, in the world from this vile threat uh, to all of our safety. And God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So let's turn the corner. How many of you could use a little more frustration in your life? Anybody? Anybody? Usually I ask something good and you raise your hand. Nobody. Well, listen, if you uh, are listening to me and you need more frustration, could I recommend that you take up the game of golf? Someone, uh, how many golfers do we have? Do we have any golfers? We've got quite a few. Quite a few. You, the early service is going to have golfers. You guys get up early. Uh, somebody said, uh, why do they call it golf? It's because all the other four-letter words were taken. It's a, it's a frustrating, frustrating game. Now, for those of you who are not golfers, let me quickly explain it because I'm going to use a golf illustration here at the top end. Uh, golf consists of 18 holes divided into a front nine and a back nine. The goal of golf is to shoot par. Par is a score of 72 for the 18 holes. In other words, you hit the ball 72 times over the 18 holes. That's par. Nobody ever shoots par. <laughs> Tiger Woods doesn't shoot par anymore, okay? The average golfer shoots over 100. Only 50% of golfers ever break 100 without cheating. 
And yes, there's an abundance of cheating in golf. <laughs> Foot wedges and such. Somebody said, if your opponent has trouble remembering whether he shot a six or a seven, it means he probably shot an eight. <laughs> Somebody else said golf is the game where they yell four, they get a six, and they mark down five. Okay, that's just kind of how it works. But only 50% ever break a hundred without cheating. And only 25% of all golfers, quarter of all golfers ever break 90. And only 2% <clears throat> ever break 80, much less shoot a par. Now, I am an average golfer, which means I do the happy dance when I break 100, okay? It's just, and I do uh, fairly regularly break 100, but that's about, that's about it. Well, the other day, some guys uh, from the church took me golfing, and uh, we played on a course, and, and uh, they, they put us out on the back nine first. So we played the back nine first, so actually it's our front nine. And I want to show you what I did. I shot a 39 on the back nine. Last night there was applause for that. I'm telling you what, I was so happy. I was so happy. I was. I was like, now I wasn't talking to anybody. It ruins the conversation because you start to focus, you know, and you don't want to think about anything. And I'm thinking, I'm going to do it. I'm going to break 80. The Holy Grail. I'm going to break 80. I'm going to be one of the 2%. I'm going to get a bumper sticker that says, I am the 2%. You know, I'm excited. And it went well until the other nine. And I got a par on the first hole and then six consecutive double bogeys. Golfers, can you feel my pain? And then a bogey and another double bogey for a 52. 52 plus 39 equals 91. Can I tell you something? Most days I would have been thrilled, more than thrilled with a 91. Was I happy that day? Would I have been happier had this been the front nine and this the back nine? I couldn't have waited to play again. But because this was the front nine and that was the back nine, I didn't want to talk to nobody. Because the goal in golf, as is the goal in life, is that you finish strong. You finish well. You make some mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. You make improvements. And you finish well on the back nine. Now, we're in a series uh, that we're calling Poets, Prophets, and Kings, Loving and Leading in Challenging Times. And we're just studying some Old Testament uh, characters, prophets, poets, and kings. And, and this week, uh, I'm, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to tell a sad story. I'm going to be honest with you. This week's message is tough for me. Uh, I have the gift of encouragement. I just do. That's what I do naturally is I just default to encouragement. In fact, um, if you're on Facebook uh, this week, uh, I've been doing a thing on Periscope, and I'm going to switch it to Facebook for this week. Uh, every morning, uh, Monday through Thursday at about 9 o'clock, I do a little 10, 15-minute morning encouragement, you know, and, and uh, people gather. And really, it's what I do. It's, it's, it's fairly easy for me to encourage. What is not easy for me is to warn and to be prophetic. And that's what this story is about. It's about, it's about a king who had a great start and uh, faded very quickly. It's very sobering. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about a story that doesn't end well. And the reason I want to, I want to tell you up front, is because I love you. I love you. I love being your pastor. I've been your pastor for 27 years. And I want you to finish strong. I don't want us to emulate the story that we're going to study. So buckle up. We've got a lot of ground to cover in the next 25 minutes. 
But I want to I talk about a king. In fact, rather than me setting it up, let me set it up earlier. We were in uh, Israel a few months ago, and we were uh, actually in Jerusalem at the Western Wall. Some people call it the Wailing Wall. And I had a little cap on, and I'd just been there praying. And I went to a section of the wall that's 3,000 years old that is referred to specifically in a scripture that I'll give you in the setup. But we talk about the king that we're going to study today. So take a look at this. This weekend, we're going to look at three questions. Here's the first one. If you could ask for anything, what would you ask for? Maybe it's money, maybe it's a new car, maybe it's a better job, maybe it's about your health or the health of a loved one. If you could ask for anything right now, what would you ask for? 3,000 years ago, a young man named Solomon was asked that same question, and he got the answer right. Solomon was a king in Jerusalem. In fact, I'm standing in front of a wall that's nearly 3,000 years old that Solomon built. You find the story in 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 15, where it says that Solomon fortified the walls of the city. Well, earlier than that, Solomon became king, and God said to him, what do you want? Solomon didn't ask for riches, he didn't ask for health, he didn't ask for anything other than a heart of discernment. He said, God, I'm just a young man, I've never been king. How am I gonna rule all of these people? I need a discerning heart. And so God said to him, because you didn't ask for riches and you didn't ask for fame, I'm gonna give you both as well as the heart that you desired. Here's the second question. How could one so wise be so foolish. You see, Solomon started well, and when he didn't feel like he knew what he was doing, he depended on God. But as he gained more wealth and more fame, he didn't make the right choices. One by one, he made small, unwise decisions that led to the downfall of his dynasty. Look at the, the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 16 is clear instruction for what a king is to do. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So how did Solomon do as a king? First of all, he acquired horses. He acquired wives, he had 300 wives, 700 concubines. Can you imagine that at a Thanksgiving dinner? And he acquired gold. In fact, those of the time said that he taxed the people to such a degree that over 666 talents of gold came into his treasury every year, which is a huge number for a small nation. In fact, when he died, uh, the elders of the nation came to his son and said, would you, you know, lighten the burden on us that your father gave through taxes? That's a whole nother story. Solomon, the wisest man ever to live, made foolish decisions. So here's the third question, and it's probably the most important one. How can you and I benefit from the wisdom of Solomon without making the foolish choices that he made? We're going to dig into that this weekend. In fact, we're going to dig deeply into it. And we're going to find out what does God's word have to say to us through a king like Solomon. So have you watched any of the debates? I think there was a debate on last night, and then there have been various ones 
<clears throat> the politicians will say things in the heat of the moment, and then somebody will come back later, and they're the fact checker. Have you seen that? And they, they're, oh, let me fact check that. I said Solomon had 300 wives and 700 girlfriends. Actually, he had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends, for those of you who are scoring at home. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure that that was, that was correct. So, what led to Solomon's downfall, and how can we avoid it? Let me give you three ideas about what I think led to his downfall. The first one was this, mismanaged charisma. Mismanaged charisma. Have you ever known someone with exceptional charisma? Just a huge gift, huge personality. They have such a personality that maybe when they come into the room, they take all the air out of the room. They're the you know, life of the party or whatever. Just this huge charisma. Could be a super salesman. Could be a gifted athlete. Could be a phenomenal singer or musician, or maybe a great writer or blogger, or even a gifted speaker or pastor. And they often have a larger kind of than life presence. They, they have lots of social media followers. Oftentimes their fans want to get close and hang on to every word. We all know people like that. And we subconsciously assign greatness to other areas of their life. You know, it's like uh, we might say, you know, she's a great writer or whatever, and we say, oh, what a, I've read her books, what a great person she is. Not necessarily. She has a great gift to write. Or we say, what a great, you know, that guy's a great speaker, what a great pastor he is. Not necessarily. He might not be a good person at all. In fact, I knew a guy when I was uh, younger in ministry, who was the most phenomenal speaker I've ever met in my life. And in reality, he was a sexual predator. He was a terrible guy. But a lot of people thought he was a great pastor because he had this great gift. We create heroes out of gifted people, and sometimes it's unfair pressure. How have you ever heard of Charles Barkley? Anybody know who Charles Barkley is? Too many sports metaphors today, I know, but forgive me for it. It's the fall. Um, Charles Barkley, great basketball player uh, in the Michael Jordan era. Now he announces on, uh, you know, NBA games. And uh, Charles had a phenomenal gift, but he also tended to get in trouble a lot. And he would go to bars and get thrown out of bars, throw people out of bars, had problems, all this. And, and an interviewer one time said, Charles, said, there are a lot of young boys and young girls that look up to you. You're a role model. Don't you think you ought to act differently? To which he responded very famously, I am not a role model. I'm a basketball player. Your father is a role model. Your preacher is a role model. I am not a role model. <clears throat> and when I heard that, I was upset. I thought, no, you are. Whether you want to be or not, there's all these kids watching you. You should be a better role model. And that's true. He should have been a better role model, but he was right. He's not a role model. He had a phenomenal gift to play basketball. But oftentimes, we kind of juxtapose that on a person's entire life because of their charisma and gifting. And the problem is if somebody doesn't manage their charisma well, then it can lead to their downfall. Solomon had incredible charisma, incredible gifting. He prayed a prayer that changed his life. God said, what do you want? He said, I'd like wisdom. And, and God said, because you didn't ask for riches and fame, you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you all of it, riches and fame and wisdom. 
Uh, you know, people from everywhere then came to see and experience his wisdom. He would have had a million friends on Facebook had he lived today. But sadly, his gift created a platform that was larger than his character could sustain. I want you to get that. His gift created a platform that was larger than his character could sustain. And when your platform outgrows your character, you're going to be famous, but probably not for what you had intended. See, your charisma, your gifting leaves the first impression, but your character leaves the lasting impression. The crowd is intrigued by your charisma, but your family is impacted by your character. And we're going to see that with Solomon. Sadly, Solomon didn't manage his charisma well. Well, how did he mismanage his charisma? Let me give you a couple of ideas on that that I saw in the scriptures. First of all, he made, because of his charisma, he made unwise exceptions. Let's take a look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. This is when Solomon is, is fairly new, <coughs> excuse me, in being a king. It said, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David. So he's doing pretty good. He walked according to the instructions of David. Accept that. Can you circle accept that? <clears throat> accept that. I'm going to get a water here real quick. Put a, put a circle around it and put a star by it. Oh, they highlighted it there. Um, put an arrow toward it too. Would you do that? <laughs> How do you know this is really important? Except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. He had reasons that some of the rules didn't apply to him. God had said specifically, do not offer sacrifices in the high places. What were the high places? We talked about them a couple of weeks ago. This was originally a Canaanite area. They uh, worshiped pagan gods. And so they would have altars or high places for their pagan gods and they'd offer sacrifices, sometimes even child sacrifices to them. And God's instruction was to tear those down. They have nothing to do with your walk with God. Instead of tearing them down, oftentimes what they do is they just convert them to a place of Jewish worship. Now what's wrong with that? It introduced syncretism. Say that word together, syncretism. Religious syncretism uh, into the whole economy of God, which meant this. They would take a little bit, or, you know, they'd have a basis of Judaism, and they'd take a little bit that they liked from the pagan worship, and they'd include that, and a little bit over here from Canaanite worship, and they would include that. And ultimately, the whole worship of God would be impure, and God knew that their, their hearts would be led away uh, to impure worship, and therefore, they would not accomplish the will of God in their life or in their community, or in their lifetime. We see the exact same thing today. Exactly the same thing today. You even see it on bumper stickers where you've got a mixture of Christian, Islam, Judaism. I know it's trying to say peace, but we, we, we extend it even further. We bring in a little bit of Buddhism into our worship, a little bit of New Age, a little bit of whatever it happens to be. And a lot of times, if we don't like something from the Bible, we'll just include, exclude that, bring something else in, and it's religious syncretism. It's the same thing as then, and that's a whole other message, whole other message. But God knew that it would lead his people astray, 
And so that was his command. But Solomon said, that rule doesn't apply to me. And small exceptions become the cracks in the foundations that ultimately destroyed his kingdom. So let me ask you, do you make unwise exceptions? Are there reasons that the rules apply to others, but they don't apply to you at work? At work, maybe you have a certain level because of your giftedness, your charisma, but you kind of subconsciously or maybe overtly, you know, rules apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to me. Can I tell you there are cracks in the foundation of your life that could lead to destruction as it did to Solomon. It can happen in your family. It can happen with how you approach the Word of God. Several years ago, Debbie approached me with a telephone bill that we had. Um, and on that telephone bill was a charge for a 900 number. How many of you remember 900 numbers? That's back when telephones were hooked to the wall with, a, with a, like a cord. And, um, and a 900 number uh, was basically a porn line. Okay, it's where uh, you could talk to a certain, or have a certain conversation with a certain kind of woman. And uh, so my wife was wondering why there was a 900 number on our phone bill. Well, I knew it wasn't me. <laughs> Baby, come on, no. But I had a pretty good idea who it was uh, because we had some young boys in our house that had friends and all that kind of thing. And so they were about 12 and 13 years old. I won't mention who they are. <laughs> and because uh, they're leaders in the church now. And... So I, I went to their room and I sat down with them. I said, I've got a, I've got a phone bill here with a 900 number uh, and they charge for 900 numbers. Anybody know where that came from? And so finally one of them fessed up and said, well, you know, we were watching wrestling. They loved wrestling and it was advertised on a wrestling show, which they did. And uh, I said, well, you called it. Yes, we did. What was on it? Oh, it was just some wrestling tips. To which I replied, well, when I saw the 900, I went ahead and called it too. They got white as a ghost. And it wasn't the kind of wrestling that they were referring to. And so it gave me opportunity to have a long talk with them. And I talked with them about no exceptions. I, I told them that as a pastor that I had counseled over the years and knew people, very good people that wished that they had never opened that door. That they had had a no exception rule as it came to porn, that they had never opened that door because some, not all, but some had become addicted uh, sexual addicts and the addictions that they create. And I explained the destruction of it. I explained that people create exceptions with not just porn, but with drugs or with lying or with cheating or other areas of their lives. And those exceptions became the crack in the foundation that ultimately made life harder. That's what happened with Solomon. In fact, in the New Testament, it says it like this. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And one of the things that's saying is that what you sow in your teens and your 20s in your 30s, you reap in your 50s, and in your 60s, and in your 70s. It's best to have no exceptions. Not only did he fail there, but he failed to heed the warnings that God had for him. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9 <clears throat> and verses 4 through 9. Now, 
This is a little bit later in Solomon's life. And Solomon, by this time, has created the temple. Solomon's temple on the highest hill in Jerusalem. He's created this temple. And it's fantastic. It's a temple to wor uh, for worship of God. And what they're doing is they're having the dedication of that temple. And here's what God says. God says, as for you, if you will walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all that I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees that I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off from Israel, or I, I will cut off Israel from the lands that I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble, which actually happened. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this people? <clears throat> and people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all of this disaster upon them. And so God gives him a warning. God always warns us before dreadful falls. Nobody just wakes up one time and they fall and it's just a disaster. It's always little bitty steps, little exceptions, and then ultimately one day we're at the edge of a crater or maybe at the bottom of a shaft. But God always warns us. Maybe for you, you've had warnings from God on areas where you're compromised. Maybe you have a wake up at night. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just going to ask rhetorical questions and you just kind of sit there as if this has never happened to you, okay? If you ever had a wake up at night, cold sweats, you wake up, oh my goodness, and you're thinking about an area where you're compromising in. Or maybe you've had this dream, you know, kind of a warning dream, or, or maybe it's through the written word. You know, you're, you're reading God's word or I'm reading the word on a screen or whatever, and it just jumps out at you and goes, you know, this is an area you need to, you need to really address. Or maybe it's another human being. Let me tell you this. The content of your character is revealed by your response. How you respond will reveal the content of your character. Maybe it's a family member who says to you at some point, you know what, I think you're drinking too much. Started with just a little bit, but I, I think there's a real problem there. How do you respond? Content of your character is revealed by your response. Or maybe it's a friend after a small group pulls you aside, maybe goes to Starbucks, has a little coffee, and says, you know, dude, you're hitting on all the women in the group. And uh, you just put out double entendre jokes. You think they're funny. And listen, the, the girls are just creeped out by that whole thing. You, you got to do something about that. How do you respond? Content of your character is revealed by your response. Or maybe it's a trusted sister that comes to you and says, you know, I, didn't, I hate saying anything, but have you ever considered the way you dress is a little bit inappropriate? Do you, when you go to your closet or you go to the store to buy something, do you ask the question, will this honor God? Or does all you care about is you know, how sexy that it makes you feel. Not that there's anything wrong with 
you know, looking attractive and looking nice. And, and what do you do? Do you go, what's, how, how do you respond? It reveals the content of your character. Or maybe a coworker who doesn't even know Jesus says, you know, you, know, you seem to complain a lot. Maybe they say all the time. When they say all the time, you know, well, it's not all the time, it's only sometimes. And the content of your character is revealed. Can I say something? God is speaking to you. It's a warning from God because he doesn't want you to fall. When somebody corrects you about a sensitive area, how do you respond? Look at what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Now, don't read Ecclesiastes if you're depressed because it's a depressing book. It's, it's uh, Solomon it, 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 on his back nine when he's not doing well, just talking about how lousy life is. But here's what he says. He says, better a, a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. And so, and so what are you no longer doing that you used to? You used to lead a Bible study or you used to teach a class. You used to pray over your kids. You used to have consistent Bible study. Come on, don't be a foolish old king. That's my word of warning to you. Be a Caleb. Remember Caleb in the Old Testament, this old dude, 85 years old, <clears throat> who says, give me that mountain. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. My life's not over. I'm finishing stronger than I started. That's the model. Solomon is not the model. And for some of us, it's time to get in the game. Come on, the game's not over. So Solomon fell because he mismanaged his charisma. Let me give you a second one. The next two got to be shorter. Misguided priorities. Misguided priorities. In the beginning, <clears throat> Solomon had his priorities right. Remember, God came to him, said, what do you want? And he said, give me wisdom. Why? For yourself? No. Because I, I want to know how to serve the people better. Great priorities. But the longer he reigned, the more it became about him and what he wanted. Another scripture. This one is uh, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 4. He's looking back at his life. He said, I undertook great product, projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to the water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of the kings and provinces. And I acquired male and female singers in a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. And I would say this, what a great scorecard. I mean, for in most of our eyes, this guy finished really well on the back nine. Great, great scorecard. Look what he says about it. Next verse. I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for all of my toil. Go on. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That sounds like a 52 on the back nine. You know... Solomon got everything he wanted, but he still wasn't happy. We tend to think that people are unhappy because they don't get what they want. My grandkids think that. 
unhappy because they don't want to get the, what they want. But the truth is the problem is not getting, not getting what you want. The problem is wanting the wrong things, things that don't satisfy. You know, there are a lot of studies these days on what makes people happy. And the results in most studies are this. We are terrible predictors of what makes us happy. What do most people think the one thing that would make them more happy? Money, sure. And what studies tell us is that money's good. But honestly, once you get to like a middle class living where you've got a house, a car, food, you know, basic shelter, basic stuff, the more money you have doesn't guarantee a thing. It's certainly, you know, if you work twice as hard uh, to get, uh, you know, 10 times as much money, you're not going to have 10 times as much happiness. We know that. I'm not saying money's terrible, but we've, we've got to change the scorecard. We're not unhappy because we don't get what we want. We're unhappy because we want the wrong things. The American scorecard, you get to the end of your life, and here's the American scorecard. You got a great uh, job, check, got that. Big paycheck, check. Nice car, check. Big house, check. Cool toys, check. None of those things are bad. But do they make you happy? Not necessarily. No, there's all kind of testimonies on people that have all of those things and not necessarily happy. So what scorecard can you use to guarantee happiness at the end of your life? Let me suggest one. How about this one? At the end of your life, if you find yourself in a warm, loving, growing relationship with Jesus, check. At the end of your life, you find that you have a close relationship with your family, check. At the end of your life, if you have a warm, growing, loving relationship with the church and the people in the church, check. I, I, I just about guarantee you, you that you're going to be happy, okay? We're not happy because we don't have the things that we want. We're, we're unhappy because we want the wrong things. Am I saying you can't have nice things and good things? No, not at all. But do not put your happiness there. Don't neglect this for that, Okay? So how's your scorecard? Solomon mismanaged his charisma. He had misguided priorities. Let me give you one more. You're not gonna like this one at all. Just tell your neighbor, I am not gonna like this one. We're skipping this one uh, during response time. <clears throat> he had misplaced affections. Misplaced affections. He was unequally yoked. I wanna read, I wanna read another scripture. Where is this one? This one is 1 Kings 11. This is God's final judgment on Solomon. He says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, and Clemsonites. <laughs> we needed a laugh. <clears throat> They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods next. You guys read this one while I drink. Nevertheless, <clears throat> okay, let's go to the next one. I'm going to do this one. You guys did terrible on that. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his David, of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. 
on a hill east of Jerusalem. It's the Mount of Olives, by the way. The Mount of Olives. Solomon built a high place for Chimeth and the detestable god of Moab. It's where they sacrificed children, among other things. Right across from where he built the, the, the temple of the Lord. It got so bad, his wives led him astray, that he built a temple, a competing temple to the detestable gods of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Here's the sad part. I wept several times when I read this scripture this week. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Look at this. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. What you sow in the 20s and 30s, 40s. Unless you repent of it, you will reap. And your family will reap in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. See, God warns that your closest relationships will shape the course of your life. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Parents, you need to have that scripture emblazoned into the heart of your kids. Bad company corrupts good character. That's what happened with Solomon. Uh, Proverbs 13, 20 says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. And then in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And you know a lot of times we read that, especially in today's climate, we say that's religious bigotry. No, it's not. It's God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. Sometimes we've got to come to a point where we go, you know what? Uh, God's smarter than me. I've got to trust him on a few things. God's wise. God's wise. I, uh, <laughs> I had a story in my book. I'll close with this story. I had a story in my book, uh, Irreverent. It's the, uh, my non-New York Times bestseller. <laughs> Let me give you some background behind the story. Um, I had a couple, actually a girl came to one of our services and early on it's here at Seacoast. And she came to me afterwards. I was standing in front of the, <clears throat> the platform and she said, uh, you don't know me? I said, no. She introduced herself. Beautiful girl uh, in her 20s, very successful in what she was doing in her career. And she said, I just committed my life to Christ just a few weeks ago here. I said, that's fantastic. And she said, uh, I'd like to know what Bible I should use that I could understand. And I recommended one, an NIV Bible that she could use. And in the midst of the conversation, she mentioned her fiance. And uh, so I asked her, I said, does your fiance follow the same faith that you do? Does he follow after Jesus like you are? And she said, oh, no. She said, he's an agnostic. Not only does he not follow, he doesn't believe at all. Normally, 
being an encourager and just an all-around nice guy, I would have said, God bless you, go in peace. But I said, you know what? I don't think I'd marry him. I didn't know her from Adam. I said, I don't think I'd marry him. <clears throat> they were living together. She went home. And I got a call the next morning from a very angry agnostic. <laughs> and you know what? I would have been angry too. I would have been angry too. And the first thing he said to me, he said, I want to I meet with you. And I said, okay. So we had him come in and meet. I had security all around that he didn't know. <laughs> know how big he would be. And he said, you have no right, call it religious bigotry, you have no right to tell me or to tell her who we should marry and who we shouldn't. And uh, I wish I had had wisdom today like I had, or then like I have today. I, I would have explained to him what I was thinking at the time. I would have warned him. I would have said, buddy, you ought to be happy for me. Because if you marry her, she's going to mess up your life. Let me tell you how. She's going to want to go to church every week. She's going to be fully devoted to Christ, I can tell. It's not going to be just a compartment in her life. She's going to want Jesus to be everything to her. And it's going to take time away from you. Not only that, she's going to want to join a small group. Every week she's going to want to be in a small group during the, during the week. If, as if, you know, you can go golfing or something on the weekend. But this is going to take time away from you. And buddy, if you marry her... She's going to take 10% of your money <clears throat> and give it to the church. That's going to anger you. And once you get over that, if you ever do, she's going to want to give to missions. And God's going to move her heart. In fact, she's going to want to go on mission trips. And you talk about, that's going to be 10 days, two weeks sometimes. It's going to really mess up your deal. And if you have kids, she's going to want to raise them just like her. Run from this woman. Because it's going to mess up your life. That's hard to hear. That's what he was talking about. Now, fortunately, with this guy, next thing he did is he slammed his fist down on my desk. Thought he was going to break the glass that was on my desk. And he said, You've got about 30 minutes to tell me why I ought to believe in Jesus. And I went, Yeah, let's go for this, you know. <laughs> and we met for weeks, 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 weeks. And then several weeks later, sitting on the front row about where you guys are right there. God just overcame him in an incredible way. And he committed his life to Christ. I baptized him and I married the two of them. Good story. Good story. Be careful about missionary dating. If you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't share your passion, I would hate for the rest of my life, and I'm not talking about already married, I'd hate for the rest of my life not to be able to share the thing that I love the deepest with them. Ask somebody who made a compromise in that area how it worked out for them, okay? What I talk to you about is the exception to the story. Examine your heart. Don't make the mistakes that Solomon made. You know, you don't have to lose it all when you get older. You don't have to be a wise old fool. You can have a better back nine than a front nine. The Bible and life is full of other examples of people who finish well. And the good news is the way out is the same as the way in. It's just small incremental steps of doing the right thing. It's saying to Jesus, because of Jesus, we can have a fresh start. It's saying, you know what? I'm going to sow good seeds. And if you've sowed all kind of bad seeds in your 20s and 30s and 40s, how do you, how do you, how do you get rid of that? You 
Ask God to forgive you, and then you begin to sow seeds like crazy of good seeds that overcome the bad ones from the past. But you got to recognize where you are and, and, and take God's warnings well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for how you speak your truth into our lives. God, I pray today that your truth would resonate with us. Anything that I've said that would be out of me or any impure motive at all, just wipe it away. And God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.